0: We're reading from 1 John chapter 2 verses 15 on to chapter 3 verse 1. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us their going showed that none of them belong to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son no one who denies the son has the father whoever acknowledges the son has the father also as for you see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you if it does you also will remain in the son and in the father and this is what he promised us eternal life i'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray as for you, the anointing received from him remains in you, you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real and not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. See what great love the Father has lavished upon us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him.
1: Thanks, Peter. That was fantastic. That was, like, the perfect blend of, of knowledgeable and soothing. I don't know if you guys nice podcast that. Anyway, um, I, I'm genuinely really excited to, to speak today just because, uh, I don't know if you can call it God's timing or plan or sense of humor, but this is such a perfect weekend for this passage, even though when I first got it, I was like, do you want to talk about the Antichrist? No! I am taxed. Pass. Anyway, um, in fact, I kind of hoped I wouldn't get this one, and then it got pegged to me. And then I went, oh, that's kind of good. So that's me being American processing in real time. This will happen throughout the time. We'll be okay. Um, this is a perfect passage for a Jubilee weekend and for Pentecost weekend. Because if you didn't know, today is Pentecost, which is the anniversary of the day that the Holy Spirit fell on the church, blew the doors open, crossed all the divides of language and culture, and said, I'm here, and you're in the body of Christ, and things just got really normal. And it's also a Jubilee weekend if you didn't. Attention, you know, you haven't been in the market lately. Um, Because this is a passage about monarchy, even though it doesn't seem like it. It's a passage about the spirit, even though it doesn't seem like it. I mean, you might be saying, Chris, there's nothing about royalty or the spirit in that passage. There is. But if we're going to talk about those things, we need to tell the story that God tells throughout the Bible the the big story, the 30,000 foot view that He's telling as you go through the different chapters of the library of Scripture, both Old and New Testament. If you read the big story of the Bible, it starts in the garden. and Adam and Eve walk with God and give them this chance to accept good and evil on his terms, and they don't. They're led astray by a serpent who convinces them to reject God's plan for good, and it seems like all has gone horribly wrong. And yet, God comes in and speaks promise over them that he would solve this problem, that he would conquer evil, and he says to Eve that he'll do it through one of her descendants. That one of her descendants would crush the serpent, but the serpent would strike that descendant's heel. It's an it's a odd promise, it's one that doesn't make a lot of sense. If you were reading the Bible chronologically or just through the, the, the library of the books, you might hear it and say, the serpent's going to be around, the heel, what's going on, but there's clearly a promise that God will work Eve's descendants to fix the problem that Adam and Eve caused. And then we go to Abraham. In Genesis 12, God says to Abraham, a man without children, that he'll be the father of a great nation. That many people come from him, and that that nation will bless every nation on the earth. Again, this promise to work through humanity to say, I'm going to solve the problem of evil through evil people. Which doesn't seem to make sense, because on the surface it seems like his promise is evil people are the answer, but When you look deeper, there's something more at work, because clearly, evil people can't fix the problem. It seems like you're saying, God, as you know these promises, that these broken, messed up people will fix it, but every time they try, they fail. And God doesn't seem to answer or clarify or really nail down why he's going to work through humanity. But he says he will. Israel does become a great nation, but in tragic consequences, becomes one in slavery, in Egypt, cries out to God, and God comes down and says, I will confront Pharaoh. I will reveal my holiness. I will draw you out so that you can worship me. And he accomplishes all He brings them out of Egypt. He brings them to the desert. Moses leads them as a deliverer. They go to worship God and they immediately start failing. It was a beautiful moment. Red's parting, slavery, conquered, brought out into the desert. All of a sudden, they just start bigger. They start to bigger and question God and they go, like rumbling people who wonder if really this was the right idea, maybe we should go back to slavery, it was a good time. It's a weird thing to say, but it's what they say. (laughs) And as a result, they wander in the desert, clearly lost their own vices. And yet God still brings them to the land of promise that he said he'd bring them to. And on the edge of that land of promise, Moses lays out God's code of conduct for living as his people. It is a long book, and it is really heavy at times. And there is stuff in there that if you read through a modern lens Unless you're trying to like just fill in the gaps You're surely going to wait Why? I don't understand What? And there's some very interesting commands within it But one of them that's most interesting Is a list of blessings and curses Do's and don'ts That includes a command for a king Before they do asked one In Deuteronomy 17 It says when you enter the land The Lord your God has given you And have taken possession of it and settled in it and you say, Let us set a king over us, like all the nations around us, be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself, or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them, for the Lord has told you you must not go back that way again. You, he must not take many wives, or his heart will be led astray. You must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law, taken from that of, of the Levitical priests, is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law. In these degrees, degrees, degrees. degrees. It's on the ring. On the ring. <laughs> Jack, tell me it works out. Anyway, right. sorry. And not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites And turn from the law to the right or to the left Then he and his descendants will reign a long time Over his kingdom in Israel That simply doesn't sound much like a king No property No wealth No prominence No military power An expert in scripture That sounds more like a priest Or one of us it doesn't sound like we know of kings, but yet it's God's impossible standard for kingship. It is very much impossible and we realize how true that is, because Israel famously fails to meet that standard at every turn. The first chance they have to get a king, they choose one of their own. Like, we'll forget the world! We want one of our own. And God says, don't do this. In fact, Samuel confronts them and says, if you choose a king of your own choosing, you, he'll take your property, he'll press you into service, he'll force you into slavery, he'll tax you, he'll dominate you, you'll be miserable. And they all say, that sounds good. Let's go with that plan. And God says to Samuel, let it go. They've rejected me. He says this is a clear rejection of me as their true king. It's an interesting passage. They've rejected his number one right after that. That king becomes erratic, violent, demon-possessed, and so controlling that he fails to honor God at every turn. It's a great story. Then God in blessing and kindness, chooses a king of his own. One after his own heart, he chooses David, and even that king fails miserably. All the subsequent kings amass power, property, they exploit women, they disregard God's teaching, they go back to Egypt, they literally break every single part of God's command for what it means to be a king. And it leaves you wondering, did God know what he was saying when he said you should have a king? Because this is not working. This is miserable. As a friend of mine said the other day when we were talking about the monarchy in the Bible, no, don't do it, don't go that way, would have been a more appropriate response. And yet, that's where they keep going. That's where they keep turning. Throughout that time, the prophets continue to speak and to promise, despite all this, a ruler will come who will redeem the world, rule with justice, destroy evil, and solve the problem of the garden and the serpent, and sin and succeed where so many failed. From John 1, the thrust of this promise is, there will be a new king who comes as a new David, a new shoot from the old tree, one through whom Yahweh rules, who brings shalom, on whom Yahweh's spirit rests, who acknowledges Yahweh, who stands as a shelter from the storm, who shepherds faithfully, who before Yahweh can combine forcefulness and weakness. Golden also notes that it's important whenever the Old Testament speaks of this term, you have to recognize that whenever the Old Testament speaks of this term, it never says or gives a name to what this person will be. It calls him a king, it calls him a shepherd, it calls him a ruler, but it never gives him a title. So culturally, what Jewish people of the day came to call that person was the Messiah, which is a way of saying, the anointed. You see kings were often anointed. Samuel anointed David. He walked up to him, smeared his head to say this is the one that God has chosen. It's almost a way of saying this one is marked. God has marked this one. He's the one that God picks for this role. And so saying the anointed, saying the Messiah was a way of saying the marked one. No other. none like him, The ultimate choice. God's perfect pick. That's the Messiah. It's not a term in scripture. You don't see it in the Old Testament. And yet. When people pointed to the promise, they would say, the Messiah, to say all the things that God keeps saying, the shepherd, the ruler, the promise, that, that's the Messiah. But 400 years of failed kings and 400 years of no kings, and many who came and claimed to be the Messiah, but clearly weren't, does a lot to undercut confidence. So Israel progressively gets itself to a point where everything they do and experience and say and live under starts to tell them Maybe the whole Messiah project was a whim or a wish or a false promise. We don't know what to do with it. But then, a miracle comes. God sends an angel to Mary to let her know that she will be miraculously pregnant with God's own son, that she'll have a virgin birth, and that she'll become the mother of the promised king, that she'll name him Jesus, and he'll accomplish all God's promises. And she says, Lord, let it be according to your word. It's this moment of incredible faith where she says, this is insane impossible but I say yes to you and Jesus is the Messiah from his first breath in Mary's arms to the cross to the day he was resurrected to his ascension in heaven he continues today he is the Messiah and he fulfills and perfects everything that Deuteronomy 17 said for a king to do he doesn't hoard wealth he doesn't marry he doesn't amass the military power he becomes an expert in the law he doesn't hold himself above others no special prominence. Instead, he washes people's feet. He stands with the outcasts of society. He weeps with those who weep and mourns with those who mourn. He serves, he pours out his life for others on the cross to defeat sin and death and evil. And he rose again to show his power over sin and death forever. After he rose, he ministered to men, and then eventually he ascended to heaven, promising he would return to finish the job of overcoming sin and he is the King of Kings. He is the Messiah. But that is some very good news. He is the one who proves that the promise of the King was God's good promise. That it wasn't a mistake that people failed. That only God, the flesh, fully man, fully God, could accomplish all that God had said. Now, that's really exciting. But for the early church, his ascension into heaven immediately created problems. Can you imagine? We finally got a kid. He left and he's coming back. I mean, we saw him. Where did he leave? Into the clouds. But he said he's coming back. To the clouds. Up there. But he's coming back. Kings don't leave into the clouds and then promise they're coming back and then not coming back. This is, this is an issue with Jesus. Jesus has a tendency to do this. He starts a party and then leaves. He starts a ruckus and then leaves. He heals someone and takes a nap. That's what's wonderful about Jesus. He's constantly turning over tables and then disappearing. And the disciples and the apostles are left to clean it up going, He was just here. I promised you this was Jesus' is doing. And there they are again. They're living in a day and age. And John is working with the church. Is trying to confront the problem of Jesus' seeming absence. How can he be the Messiah if he's gone? People are starting to leave. They're getting restless. They don't want to be a part of the church anymore because it was a church for the Messiah and there's no Messiah around anymore. So maybe we made a mistake. Tom Wright notes Jesus had warned that false messiahs would arise after him and to see many people. And perhaps even some from among his own followers. At this point, it's easy for us to make a mistake. We might well think Jesus, and John for that matter, were referring to what we would call a religious phenomenon, but the complex world of first century Judaism, particularly in Palestine itself, was full of men and movements, claiming that God was acting at last in this way, and that way, through this movement, through that man. This is as much as we would call political as what we would call religious, though in fact you couldn't get a razor blade between them in those days. This is bewilderingly to the historian trying to understand it, but yeah, this is bewildering to the historian trying to understand it today, and it must have been far more bewildering in real life at the time. And many of the early Christians must have wondered, can this be Jesus back again? Should I go and see? Or even, perhaps, this numicide must be the real thing, and all that extraordinary business about Jesus was just a preliminary warm-up act. After all, since he left us, nothing much seems to have happened, just a few people So what one John is dealing with is the problem of Antichrist. Now when we hear that term, it's so loaded. It's movies, and it's plays, and it's books, and it's myth. And so we make it so grandiose that only a person, as my friend put it, on the level of Hitler, seems to meet that standard. But for John, it was anyone who was saying, Jesus can't be the Messiah, because Christ is just the Greek word for Messiah he can't be the Christ he's not around the world anymore let's go find ourselves a new one to be Antichrist was to say Jesus isn't who he said he was or maybe he's not or I'm not sure to abandon the truth of Jesus title and identity and to look for someone to fill that hole so John is responding to that problem and saying Jesus is the Christ which is a great way of saying Jesus is the Messiah. There is no other one. He is the anointed one. This is who you have. And then he follows it up with this interesting phrase. You know this because you have been anointed. So what does that mean? Throughout the story of kings in Israel, often when a king was anointed, the spirit would fall in power on that king, on that leader, that anointed person, this mark, this sign from heaven to say, My power rests on them to do what I've said they will do. But at Pentecost, all of a sudden, the anointing was spread out across the entire community. And beyond that, Gentiles and distant people who barely had heard about Jesus suddenly received this anointing, this mark, as if to say, God picked that one and this one and that person far off and this person far off. And suddenly, everyone's anointed and they all have received the Spirit to say, I choose them for my family and I choose them for my family. So when John is saying, don't forget you have the anointing, he's saying, what more do you need to remember the truth of his word than the Holy Spirit in your life? This is not a small matter. You have the sign that every king needed to rule with power. You have the sign that every deliverer needed to have the strength to move. You have the Holy Spirit. Do not lose the truth that Jesus is the Messiah by forgetting what it is he's given. you. John makes it clear that anyone who says Jesus is not the Messiah, is by definition Antichrist, is opposing the Messiah. He says don't let go of the truth. What's the truth? Jesus is the Messiah. It's a really simple passage. Whatever you've heard, whatever people are saying, there's not a new Messiah over here. There won't be a new Messiah tomorrow or the next day. Jesus didn't come up short. He didn't fail. He is in heaven. He will return. He is the Messiah. And when he says this, he couches it in a very, very strange caution, I would say. Before making this claim, he says, don't love the world or anything in the world. Don't live by your desires, whether for what you want or what you're affected by. Don't let confidence in what you say and do and have drive you, because the world will pass away, but the one who does the will of God will live forever. Don't love the world is how he starts this whole sort of moment of conviction to say to the church, don't abandon Jesus. It's, it's confusing, considering John was the one who wrote, God so loved the world. So do we love the world, John? Or do we not love the world? I'm confused. How do I do both? And that's where it comes to worship. Because in this passage, what John is essentially saying is don't set anything in the world, even the world itself, above Jesus in such a way that you no longer worship it, but you worship those things. Because worship in the library of scripture includes service, it includes acknowledgement, it includes submission. It's the way you respond to a king or someone who's worthy of honor. You worship them. So worship can just mean to bow down, it can just mean to give praise, and it can mean to serve for the rest of your life. That's why Paul says, Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, this is your spiritual act of worship. So, the reason that John is bringing this in is because he's saying, what's drawing people away from Jesus is the need for something more than Jesus. Whether it's a desire for something in this world, or a desire for someone in this world, or needing to be confident in your own accomplishments and possessions, all these things, when they're above Jesus, will eventually lead you away from Jesus. Jesus said himself, you can't serve two masters. If if you're trying to serve one, eventually you'll abandon the other. And so John is saying, before we get into this dialogue about who's anti-Messiah or anti-Christ, don't you go that way by elevating your desires and your possessions and your accomplishments to such a point that you serve them more than you serve God. And that's why this is a passage about worship. John's appeal to the church is to remember to worship Jesus with everything. To surrender your desires to Him. To surrender your longings to Him. To surrender your possessions to Him. To surrender everything to Him and say, it's all yours. There's nothing you lack. There's nothing you're not worthy of. There's nothing I need to have before I worship. I don't need you to give me things or relationships or accomplishments or position for me to worship. You are the Messiah. If I have nothing, you're the Messiah. If I have everything, you're the Messiah. If I have a perfect relationship, you're the Messiah. If I have a bad relationship, you're the Messiah. Worship. Now, now why is this so hard? Why is worship so hard? Why do so many kings fail? Why do so many kings have the mark of the Holy Spirit, the anointing on them and still fall short? Why were they filled with God's power? but chose to use their own power instead. Why does the church still do this today? Why do I, at times, live in a way that's anti-messiah? Why? I would say that the two roots, or maybe three, are fear, control, and power. Why are we driven by what we don't have? We're afraid of what will happen if we don't have it. We want to control the narrative, control our lives, seize the things we think we need to make it. Every single king that failed, failed, because he chose control, power, and fear to drive himself, and his life, and his rule. Why do people choose a king? Why did they demand a king of their own? When they got to the Promised Land, they saw enemy after enemy, with powerful king after powerful king, and they were terrified, and thought, well, if we don't have a king, We're done for. This is a people who just saw Pharaoh defeated by God's own miracle power and within 40 years thought, but there's no guarantee you're going to do that again. So maybe we just need to have a powerful king and our powerful king can fight their powerful king and we'll be okay. But that fundamentally is a failure to worship because you're saying that God is not worthy enough of being trusted with your future. So before I turn to us, I want to say what I'm about to say now, for us as a church, I believe is a matter of conviction and not condemnation. Here's what I mean by that. Condemnation locks you in a prison that you didn't realize you were already in. It pushes you deeper into a trap you didn't realize you'd fall into. Conviction releases you from a prison you didn't know you'd fallen into. Suddenly you're free and you're out and you're into the open and you're moving forward. So as I say this, if there's a voice of shame that says, oh, I'm, I'm terrible, I'm the worst, that's simply not what Jesus does. When he meets Peter and Peter falls on his face and says, oh, wait for me, I'm a sinful man. He says, get out and follow me. He doesn't respond and say, that's right, deal with that for a little bit. I'll just let you stew your guilt." Some of us have just dealt with teachers and parental figures for too long who, like, used shame and guilt as a tool. Like, yeah, you did. You broke my trust. just going to let you sit over there for a year, and maybe you can use the car again. (laughs) It's relatable, but we we take these patterns, and we latch onto them, and we think that God, that Jesus is a king who needs our shame to display his goodness. But he nailed shame to the cross us. So before I say any of this, what's on offer today from the Spirit is conviction, a victory that brings us out of places we didn't realize we were. Why do we worship things over Jesus? Why do we say in our hearts, yeah, God will follow you, but can we talk about this or that? Are you going to come through with this or that? Tell me what's going to happen with this relationship or that relationship. Tell me what's going to happen with this call, this destiny, what are you going to do with this? Why do we set those things before him as if to say I'll worship you, I'll bow before you, I'll follow you, I'll honor you, but I need you to give me this first and suddenly place the thing over Jesus in our estimation. Because we're afraid. and we think things and people and possessions and power and resources and titles will save us from the chaos and evil of is relatable how many of us in the midst of all the chaos of the last few years have thought to ourselves in a moment if only i had if only i had done if only i had access to how many of us in moments of isolation have thought if only my community was better or i had this relationship if only i hadn't if only my family why is it that our first posture when we experience these emotions is not Jesus help you are everything you're my shepherd I don't lack because you are because it's tempting to listen to the serpent and give in to control over worship but there's enough stories in history and in our lives and our friend's lives to show us that control never works control always consumes When Jesus asks us to worship him, he asks us to worship in spirit and in truth. The Bible says that where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, and that the truth will set you free. So if Jesus asks us to serve him, to bow down before him, to honor him, and to follow him, in spirit and in truth, he's asking us to do that in real freedom. Wide open, green pasture, freedom in Christ. So if you sense, as I'm talking about this, something that has maybe a little more prominence in your life than Jesus, whether it's a lack or an abundance, whether it's a position or a person. And shame is saying to you, feel guilty, or fear is saying to you, latch on. Jesus is saying, you have no idea what's on the other side of worshiping anymore than whatever it is you're thinking about. Freedom is here today for all who want to be free of cycles of worship that will pass away and want to worship the one who will reign forever with our possessions, our relationships, our positions, and our efforts. It's so tempting to establish our own little kin- kingdoms of power and influence and authority because there's not just a posture of antichrist that opposes Jesus, there's also the one that thinks that we are Jesus. Then when Jesus isn't showing up fast enough, thanks thinks, well, right, I'll be Jesus then, that's still antichrist. Because what we're saying is Jesus delaying it's a failure. If we step up and say, I'll do what Jesus is not doing, we're saying that he doesn't have good enough timing to have a reason for his delay. But we can't simultaneously establish a kingdom of our making and worship Jesus as Him. If we believe the story I shared, if we believe that Jesus is the Messiah, we either affirm or reject that. If it's true, he either deserves worship or he doesn't. So really, there's only for Christ or anti-Christ. There's nothing in between. And we're invited to worship him and lay down our kingdoms and lay down our appetites and lay down our greed and lay down our relationships and say, I will do with these things whatever you would have me. I mean, this is what the early church did for the briefest moment, possessions, let's share them. Power, let's give it away. Influence, let's honor others. Let's just give it away freely. It's his, he's got more. He's not gonna run out. Let's share it. And so for us, the heart check of lack and abundance can be particularly powerful as we move forward. You see, when we experience lack, it'll tell us a lot about whether we're worshiping Jesus. If our first response to lack is to refill on our own strength, we're not worshiping it yet. If we don't look at lack and say, Jesus, your will be done, help, we're worshiping our own strength. If we come into abundance and our first posture is not thankfulness and generosity, we're worshiping our own strength. And again, I'm saying this is a condition, this is not to say it's bad to have possessions. It's bad to look at possessions and think, yeah, that's for me. And I get more. And I get more. And never stop to thank the one who gave it to us. I mean, if you've lived or traveled enough, if you've had enough experiences, you know what it is to have had nothing and had someone be generous to you in Jesus' name, weep because you felt God's goodness in you. When we hold on to things without thanking God for them and giving them away, we just lose that out on participating in His good kingdom, expanding this world. There's also a hard check with emotions because let's be honest, emotions tell us a lot about worship If we are really joyful about pick anything here I mean, If you're joyful about Chromars, but like, you in into worship you're like, I'm just not an expressive person <laughs> You're expressive somewhere. I picked Chromars because she was like, I've never seen anyone outside promars right?
0: Yes! <laughs> yeah.
1: But we all, we all have things that bring out our most joy. Does Jesus bring out our greatest joy? What brings your greatest despair? How many of us, and you can just nod silently get really, like, or just devastated if we let someone down a relationship? Do we have those emotions for Jesus? Do we allow him to speak into those and say, don't be ashamed, don't feel guilty, or do we just go, i will get over it. Really central in the gospel is the idea that we don't have to live under the tyranny and the threat of evil and brokenness, and that includes the tyranny and brokenness in ourselves. <clears throat> thank God I'm not the king that saves the world. Thank God I'm not in that position because I would feel like every king in Israel did. More spectacularly, I'm really grateful I do not have that much power. Um, and thank God for the perfect king, the one who brings shalom, the one on whom God's spirit rests, who's a shelter in the storm, the good shepherd. Who has come that we might not have to trust in human power whether offered by others or found in ourselves is alive continues to intercede on our behalf and will return to finish what he started i mean if we see people who need a guide in the world we can remember that jesus is the good shepherd if we see injustice and war we can remember that jesus is the prince of peace if we experience storms we know that jesus is the shelter And when we see chaos and evil, that doesn't mean that Jesus isn't on the throne and that he's abandoned us. He's at work every day through the Spirit and in the church. And he's promised he's only to finish what he started through the anointing that he's given us over our lives. So this is just where I'm going to shift into a moment of ministry before I pass it off to Rachel. And I'll just say this. Um, As I was preparing this, I felt like Jesus' heart was to say, you may have been anti-me, but I'm not anti you And I mean that by, you may have felt like Jesus has abandoned you, but he hasn't. You may have felt like Jesus has rejected you, but he hasn't. If you want, if you don't believe me, I'm happy to go through every verse that I have to back it up. I actually don't have time. to read every verse that qualifies what I just said. But there's a lot of them. And the common thread is, he sacrificed more than you could do wrong. He gave more than you could mess up. He has more than you could destroy he longs for you back, repents and he'll come for you if you're lost he'll find you, if it's a running thing. Um, but I feel like just like those who abandoned Christ in the early church, there's a temptation at times to feel like I don't see him showing up. Has he abandoned me? Has he rejected me? Maybe I need another love. And we turn to human kings and human power and human resources and human position and our own strength and we become unconsciously anti just because we feel like no one else is going to help us. We turn to our own means because we think that God's not going to come through. And to illustrate this point, I'm just going to remind us of the story of Lazarus. Lazarus got sick and they called Jesus and said, Lazarus is going to die. By the way, this is really cool because I thought I was going to talk about this in a small group. but a small group. Lizzie was praying for us a small group and was like, John 11, out of nowhere. And Okay, this isn't John 11, just to clarify. That's just a plug for being a um, Lazarus gets sick, and they call Jesus and say, Lazarus is sick. And Jesus goes, "All right," And he waits, and he lets Lazarus die. And when he arrives, everybody looks at him and says, if he'd been here, he wouldn't have died. You're the healer. What are, you know Kind of implicit. What are you doing And he walks up to Martha, and he says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she responded, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. After that, they roll away the stone. And he calls Lazarus up, and he comes forth, and he walks in front of them and we take off the grave clothes and in the most impossible circumstance Jesus says, yeah, sometimes impossible is the point because if I hadn't done this, he says, I am doing this so you believe. How many of us have been in an impossible circumstance and we think that God's being unkind but in reality, he's building faith in us because it has to be impossible for us to believe that he did it. It is a human inclination to see the spirit working and think, well, that was my emotion. To see God's generosity, I think that's that person. Sometimes God and his gracious promises brings us away from everything we have so that he can say, look, I am Messiah. So for you, in this place, if you're feeling like you're in a dry, barren, winter season, that God's not coming through, don't give up hope. Because you may be tempted <laughs> to be anti-Jesus, but he's not anti-mean. And his spirit's here for you. So why don't we stop?